welcome to the podcast. My name is Father Bill W. I am an Episcopal priest here in Austin, Texas, and going to cut out the uh, the usual introductions because this is actually part two of an episode that we did last week. And if you haven't heard that one already, go and do that now. Otherwise, this episode probably isn't going to make nearly as much sense. But I thought we'd begin with a a quick review to kind of get us started. We're exploring Harry Tebow's article. It's titled Ego Factors in Surrender. I've got a copy of it uh, listed in the show notes. And I really encourage you to get, uh, Hazelden has a book, uh, The Collected Writings of Harry Tebow, and it's worth uh, having in your library. And Tebow was the first psychiatrist who really took AA seriously, not uh, looking so much at how it works, but why it works. What's going on inside? What has to change inside the alcoholic uh, for him or her to really find recovery. And uh, as I mentioned last time, uh, I probably read this uh, article a hundred times in my first year of sobriety, uh, because I didn't know what was going on inside of me. And it was tremendously helpful in uh, understanding uh, what was going on at the unconscious level. I didn't didn't understand any of those things uh, when I got sober and um, have been studying them for 50 years in, in recovery. Um, not just surface recovery, but I'm, I'm more interested in psychological, spiritual recovery, uh, what's really happening at the deepest levels of transformation in a person's life. Quick review, we'll start with that. So Harry identified the, the problem as ego, uh, not in the sense that psychologists refer to it, but in the popular way that it's talked about. So it's really inflated ego. Uh, And he describes someone who suffers from this condition. He says they would be prideful, arrogant, pushing, dominating, attention-seeking, aggressive, opinionated, headstrong, stubborn, determined, and impatient. In other words, he's talking about us. And, and And he says, these are traits psychological traits that are left over from childhood. They exist in our unconscious mind. We're probably not aware that we have them, certainly not at the beginning of this process. And then they're pushing up at us. I I like to use the expression, they're they're coming up from the basement, you know, and we try to push them down. And, 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 And when this conflict is going on, that's really the tension, the irritableness, the discontentedness that the big book talks about. And this all really boils down, uh, I'm afraid, to uh, emotional immaturity. I used to do interventions um, many years ago, and sometimes a woman would call me and she'd tell me about her son. And she'd say she's really worried about him. You know, he sneaks out at night, he's stealing the car, won't come home till all hours of the morning, taking money out of her dresser drawer, tells me how angry uh, he gets when she tries to confront him. She goes on and on and listen. And and I said, well, uh, how old is the boy? And she said, well, he's 46. (laughs) And uh, if if you really look at us, we're immature at very deep levels, layers of the psyche. Uh, which is really focusing on the unconscious stuff. So Harry lists uh, three traits left over from childhood. First trait, he says, is omnipotence. His majesty, the baby, was Freud's uh, uh, definition for this classic. At some level, deep inside, we're feeling all-powerful. The ruler of all the king surveys, uh, except he doesn't have too much to survey. (laughs) Because <laughs> it's fast disappearing, but it's it's still his kingdom, you know. So uh, I remember when I was in kindergarten, uh, they had a, a process, a program where they made you king for a week. They gave you a little scepter and a crown to put on your head. And uh, uh, the other kids had to obey me. And uh, I got to ride the rocking uh, horse anytime I wanted to. It was really, really nice. But then at the end of the week, the teacher says, okay, 
Billy, we need to have the crown back. And I'm sure I, I, I went a little crazy. They should have probably sent me to treatment right, right then and there because that crown was registering with something really deep and important to me. Second trait, an inability to tolerate frustration. I want what I want when I want it. And if, and if I don't get it, if, if, if the frustration mounts, what do I do? I act like a jerk. My, my emotional response is disproportionate to the event. And I, I've kind of used as a working model, anytime that happens to me, anytime my emotional response is disproportionate to the event that's happening, it's the inner child. It's the immaturity that's coming up. And I remember saying to a, a guy once, um, oh, you got to forgive me, Charlie, you know, uh, I, I wasn't myself yesterday, you know, when I acted out like that. And he says, oh, yeah, if you weren't yourself, who the hell were you? <laughs> he had read Harry's article. <laughs> who I was, was not the surface person, but, but temporarily the king shows forth and acts out, you know, and it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Hope some of you have been there. I don't think I'm the only one. Uh, third trait, Harry says, is um, we do th everything in a hurry, run rather than walk, can't relax. Uh, easy does it, what the hell is that, you know? There's no patience. We give up on things. Um, if I can't get it now, uh, you're, you're stopping me. I, I remember uh, another little story from my life is early, early sobriety and um, out with uh, the woman who, who became my wife. Wasn't at the time. I had uh, money in my pocket. I was, I was making some money. We we're in a department store in Detroit and I saw a TV and I said, uh, hey, I'm going to get that TV. And she said, well, you know, um, just got paid. Why don't you wait till tomorrow? And if you still want the TV, we'll come back and get it. She could have been from Mars, the way she was speaking. That, that simply was not the way I operate. You know, if I want it, I get it. If I can't get it, I'm frustrated. You know, <laughs> come back and we'll buy it tomorrow. I, I still wonder about that one. Anyway, uh, so Harry says, we're immature. That we have these traits that are coming from deep inside of us, uh, from the level of the unconscious, and we try to push them down, and we deny that that's really happening inside. Someone says, you know, how you doing? Oh, fine, you know. Uh, we don't even talk about the pressures that, that, that we're feeling. We don't know how to do that, you know. And uh, it's one of the things that you've got to learn in early recovery. Find a sponsor who's, you know, not just giving you uh, uh, slogans and stuff, but is, is going to help you explore some of your feelings, you know, because they're new. We, we don't know how to feel. The feelings take hold of us rather than our being able to access them. You see, you need an ego, but you need a right-sized ego. Um, not an inflated one. When the pressures build like that, what, what happens is, is we try to find relief, release. Uh, I was talking to a bunch of guys and I was acting as chaplain at a treatment center here in Texas some years ago. I had a session one day and we just kind of get down to the down and dirty. What, what alcohol and drugs really, really do for you? You know, because party is trying to not do them. And this, this, this hidden part, this, this unconscious part has a, has a real lively relationship with them. So when I, when I, when I brought that topic up, uh, the guys in the room really came alive, you know, because they got to talk about what was really going on feeling wise inside of them. They got to talk about what it feels like to be the king to let that king out of the prison that they felt he, he was in at that point. Drinking drugs allows me to be in charge, uh, to have no cares, to have sex wild. Uh, it allows me to feel normal. It allows me to close off uh, 
some of those unconscious voices, the negative ones saying, don't do this, don't do that. It's freedom. It's freedom. You know, we ended the last podcast with, uh, with the third trait. We didn't finish that one. That's carried over from uh, childhood. And that's the inner King's inability to accept frustration. So we're going to pick up the reading uh, from that point. Harry writes, in an obvious sense, this inability to accept frustration is another aspect of the king within, since one of the prerogatives of royalty is to proceed without interruption. For the king to wait is an affront to the royal rank, a slap at his majesty. As already indicated on the surface, the inability of the king to accept frustration is absolutely logical. I mean, I, I, I'm at the grocery store, I'm, I'm, I'm checking out, and um, what do they do? They, they change cashiers, they get a new one who's brand new. Don't they know who's waiting in line here? It's the king. <laughs> His majesty is frustrated. The wish of the king is the law of the land and especially in the land of infancy. Any frustration is clearly a direct threat to the status of his majesties, whose whole being is challenged by the interruption. Even more significant is another aspect of this uh, inner imperiousness, this arrogance. Uh, behind it lies the assumption that the individual should not be stopped. Again, this is logical if one considers how an absolute monarch operates. He simply does not expect to be stopped. As he wills, so will he do. This trait, persisting in the unconscious, furnishes a constant pressure driving the individual forward. It says, in essence, I am unstoppable. We won't discuss a former president who seems to really reflect some of these things. A marvelous example of it. Uh, never drank. <laughs> Brother died of alcoholism. Uh, anyway, we won't go there. Harry continues. The unconscious, which cannot be stopped, views life entirely from the angle of whether or not a stopping is likely, imminent or not at all in the picture. When a stopping is likely, there is worry and perhaps depression. When it seems imminent, there is anxiety bordering on panic. And when the threat is removed, there's a huge relief. Health is equated with a feeling of buoyancy and smooth sailing ahead, a sense of I feel wonderful. Sickness contrary wise means lacking vim, vigor and vitality and is burdened with a sense of, I'm not getting anywhere, back and forth, up and down. The need to get somewhere, to be on the go, and the consequent suffering from eternal restlessness is another direct effect of an inner ability to be stopped or expressed otherwise, to accept the fact that one is limited. I think one of the most important words in, in that first step uh, in the program, and, and, and it gets missed, is a life self-centered is unmanageable. Any self totally relying upon itself is a setup for unmanageability. You know? And that's what I have to experience. And it's not just when I, when I was drinking and quit drinking. It's what's going on now. My life is unmanageable now. It's unmanageable if I am trying to manage it with these leftover traits from childhood being operational. I mean, this is heavy stuff. And that's why I had to read this damn thing a hundred times. And I, I, ho I hope you'll, uh, you read it, uh, maybe you'll get it in 50. I don't know, uh, but, but, but do, do download it. Uh, it's on the, on the internet. The king not only cannot accept the normal frustrations of life, but because of his inordinate driving ahead is constantly creating unnecessary roadblocks by virtue of his own insistence on barging ahead, thus causing added trouble for himself. 
Well, of course, on some occasions, the king gets stopped and stopped totally. Illness, arrest, sometimes the rules and regulations of life will halt him. Then he marks time, complies if need be, waiting for the return of freedom, which he celebrates in the time-honored fashion if he is an alcoholic. He gets drunk, initiating a phase when there is no stopping him. Harry says the immaturity of such a person is readily evident. He is impatient of delay, can never let matters evolve. He must have a blueprint to follow, outlining clearly a path through the jungle of life. Life is a problem to be solved and I'm gonna solve it. The wisdom of the ages is merely shackling tradition which, which should make way for the freshness of youth. The myth of Icarus, I put in my notes here, I wanted to mention, you know, because it's so classic. Uh, I mean, the Greeks in, 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 some, in some of their mythology tried to express some of these inner characteristics that were going on inside, and, and they did them through their myths. And if you'll study the myth, you will begin to see the psychological dynamic that is at work uh, in, 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 in what they're trying to explain. So the myth of Icarus is, uh, is that he and his father were, were sent to some island uh, uh, and, and, and they couldn't get back to the mainland. And the old man, I think his name was Daedalus, he, 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 de he develops uh, some wings made out of silk, gossamer, a very, very light, lightweight, straps them on himself, straps them on the kid, uh, Icarus, and says, now, be very careful, son. Do not drive too close to the sun, S-U-N. Otherwise, your wings will melt. This is why insurance rates for young kids is so, so high, especially young boys. Why? Because they get behind the wheel and they feel this power. And suddenly it's theirs and it taps into this unconscious thing, uh, this drive that is pushing them and woo, they're going 50, 75, 100 miles an hour, you know, boom, boom. That's what happened to Icarus. He gets close to the sun. He inflates his ego, Harry would say, and it's followed by a crash. So watching yourself is, is going to be so, so critical because you are going to inflate. It's almost impossible to avoid it. So the, 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 the trick, if you will, is to watch for it, to learn, learn the, the inner psychodynamics uh, and then watch for them happening and, and take, take uh immediate steps to avoid them. Laugh at yourself. You know, there it is again. That's me. Yeah. I don't have to deny it. I, I start to own it, you know, and um, find the good things about flying, you know, because it, it is important to have fun. It is important to feel some of these powerful things, these energetic things. And if you're not being offered a program of recovery that allows you to tap into these in a healthy way, um, it's not going to last. So you against the, the uh, unconscious, I'm always going to bet on the unconscious. You, in collaboration with the unconscious, uh, you're going to be on a pathway to growth and change. Back, back to Harry, he says, the value of staying where one is and working out one's destiny in the here and now is not suspected. The 24-hour principle would be confining for one whose inner life brooks no confinement. The unstoppable person seeks life, fun, adventure, excitement, and discovers he is on a perpetual whirly gig, which carries him continuously ahead, but of course, in a circle. In a circle. The unstoppable person has not time for growth he must always inwardly feel immature.
thing called the puer eternus, the perpetual youth. That's uh, one of the characteristics of uh, alcoholics and addicts. We'll have to do a um, podcast on that someday. Fascinating stuff. This then is how the carryover of infantile traits affect the adult. He is possessed, this is an important few lines, he is possessed by an inner king who not only must do things in a hurry, but has no capacity for taking frustration in stride. He seeks a life which will not stop him and finds himself in a ceaseless rat race. All this is part and parcel of the big ego. The individual has no choice. He cannot select one characteristic and hang on to that, shedding other more obviously undesirable traits. It is all or nothing. Pay attention to that line. It's all or nothing. And uh, kind of jump ahead here, but and, and then that, that's what the big books, God is everything or he is nothing. Everything or nothing. There's no moderation with this thing. You know, he's going to get into that. He says, for example, the driving person usually has plenty of energy, sparkle, vivacity. He stands out as a most attractive human being. Clinging to that quality, however, merely ensures the continuance of excessive drive and ego with all the pains attendant upon a life based on those qualities, the sacrifice of the ego elements must be total or they will soon again regain their ascendancy. So you got to watch them. They will reappear. And if they're not dealt with, uh, their chances of taking over, you just give them time. Give them time. They're patient. <laughs> I may not be patient, but they are, you know. So this next section uh, is... is, is uh, learning how to live, it's titled, I think. Uh, maybe finally, we're, we're going to get some answers. Okay, this is the problem. We've we got a pretty good handle on the problem. Now, now, what do I need to do to find the solution? Harry writes, those who view the prospect of life without abundant drive as unutterably dull and boring should examine the life of members of Alcoholics Anonymous who have truly adopted the AA program. They get a lot of dry drunks, uh, but there are some who have truly adopted uh, the AA program, you know, and, and they're having fun, you know, they insist on it. They will see people who have been stopped and who therefore do not have anywhere to go, but people who are learning for the first time in their lives how to live. They're neither dull nor wishy-washy, quite the contrary. They're alive and interested in the realities about them. They see things in the large, are tolerant, open-minded, not closed-minded, bullying ahead. They are receptive to the wonders of the world about them, including the presence of a deity, a God who, who makes all this possible. They are the ones who are really living. The attainment of such a way of life is no mean accomplishment. Preliminary to this discussion, the conclusion was offered that the inflated ego, I'm, I'm going to say inflated uh, when I, whenever I remember to do that, the inflated ego was a residual of the initial feeling life of the infant. It should be evident that the immaturity characteristically found in the makeup of the alcoholic is a persistence of the original state of the child in connection with the description of the manifestations, which denote a large and active ego, it should be recalled that the presence in the unconscious of such egotistical forces may be quite out of reach of conscious observation. Only, this is an important line, only through the acting and feeling of the individual can their existence be suspected. So we have to watch ourselves. Watch, watch. Step 10. Continue to watch. 
continue to, you know, and admit when we're wrong. Watch what? Our actions and our feelings. Only through the acting and feeling of the individual can their existence be suspected. So in your two-way prayer, you need to look at yourself. Look at what you did yesterday. How did I act? Was everything honest, pure, unselfish, and loving? I mean, that's this where the absolutes are, are so vital to watching. And how did I feel? Or how do I feel now? That's the material to bring to your two-way prayer. I'm feeling blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's what's going on inside. Now I'm going to listen to a voice, to another voice, to another part of me that exists in all of us, that has business to do with us, that takes us right where we are and wants to lead us further in a good direction. See, there's a lot of shadow in us, but there's a lot of light in us. How do you find that light, connect with that light, and be guided by that light? Okay, no more preaching. Now, the answer to the first question raised herein, namely, what part of the alcoholic must surrender, is obvious. It is the ego element. Life without ego is no new conception. 2,000 years ago, Christ preached the necessity of losing one's life in order to find it again. He did not say ego, but that's what he had in mind. The analysts of our time recognized the same truth. They talk also about ego reduction. Freud saw therapy as a running battle between the original narcissism of the infant, his term for ego, and the therapist, whose task it was to reduce that original state to more manageable proportions. Since Freud could not conceive of life without some measure of ego, egotism, he never resolved the riddle of how contentment is achieved. For him, man to the end was doomed to strife and unhappiness. His dearest desires sure to be frustrated by an unfriendly world. We can be grateful that when Roland Hazard went in search of help, he tried to get a hold of Freud, but the story is, I don't know if it's true or not, that uh, Freud was a little um, out of, out of uh, commission because of his cocaine use. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I, I like it. And, and, and anyway, he had to go see, uh, he had to go see Jung. Uh, went for the best. The Freud was the best back, back in the, in those days. Well, Jung was second best, but Jung believed in spirituality where, where Freud did not. It's it really marked a, a, a fork in the road uh, between those two psychiatrists. Does the psychiatrist believe that there are friendly powers inside the individual as well? And can those powers be accessed? Now, that's what uh, Jung was all about. And I'm convinced um, one of the things that Jung was noted for was his use of active imagination. He developed that uh, concept. Talk to these, these inner parts of yourself. Dialogue with them. All right? And, 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 and I'm convinced two-way prayer is, is really that. It's, it's active imagination. If God were to speak to me, what would he say? And that opens my unconscious mind uh, to, be, to be hearing uh, new thoughts that, that uh, are very different, you know, because they've got to be honest. They've got to be pure. They've got to be unselfish. And most of all, they've got to be loving. So it's accessing that loving part of myself that loving part of the unconscious that wants me to become who I was always meant to be and have been frustrated by not becoming that person. Back to the book. In his studies on the addictions, Rado, another psychiatrist, more explicitly asserts that the ego must be reduced. He first portrays the ego as follows, quote, once it was a baby, radiant with self-esteem, full of belief in the omnipotence of its wishes, of its thoughts, gestures, and words on the process of ego reduction. But the child's megalomania 
melted away under the inexorable pressure of experience, life comes at them. Its sense of its own sovereignty had to make room for a more modest self-evaluation. This process, first described by Freud, may be designated the reduction in size of the original ego. It is a painful procedure and one that is possibly never completely carried out. We aim towards the elimination of egotism, but if you're watching, you're going to see it showing up again. That's the journey. Next part of the article is titled No Compromise with Ego. Sari says, like Freud, Rado thinks only in terms of reduction. The need for a complete elimination of ego is a stand which they cannot bring themselves to assume. Hence, they unwittingly advocate the retention of some infantile traits with no clear awareness that trading with the devil, the ego, no matter how carefully safeguarded, merely keeps him alive and likely at any occasion to erupt full force into action. There can be no successful compromise with ego, a fact not sufficiently appreciated by many, if not most therapists. Meditate on that one, guys. There can be no successful compromise with ego, egotism, a fact that's not sufficiently appreciated by many, if not most therapists. I think it's a fact that is appreciated in chapter five. You know, rarely have we seen a person fail who's thoroughly followed our path, you know. Now, you you can half-assedly follow the path, and you can maybe even not drink. But happy, joyous, and free, it will elude you because you're not dealing with the real battle that's going on in alcoholism, which is a lot more than just drinking. You watch that little sucker switch to food, switch to workaholism, switch to sex addiction. You know, it, it's the ism, the underlying unconscious stuff that's really at work here and needs to be dealt with. Thus, the dilemma encountered in ego reduction would be best resolved by recognizing that the old ego must go and a new one take its place. Then no issue would arise about how much of the earliest elements may be retained. The answer theoretically is none. Actually, the total banishment of the initial state is difficult to achieve. I'm, I'm going to say it's impossible <laughs> at the human level. All right. Man can only grow in the direction of its complete elimination. Its final expulsion is a goal which we can only hope for. So what, what is, the, what is the, the helpful slogan here? I think it is aim for perfection. Aim for the elimination of egotism. Watch for it. Spot it. Okay. Aim for its elimination and make progress as you go. You know, I haven't lived a whole day free from egotism. It pops up. You know, I've got a lot of it buried in, in my psyche. I, I'll promise you that. But I don't think I'm alone. You know, uh, you know, watch what happens. Watch when someone cuts you off on the highway. You know, watch when you hit a line that's three miles long in traffic. His majesty has been stopped. Allow yourself to feel that energy. All right. And allow yourself to find another voice inside. That one's there. Don't deny it. If you deny it, you're screwed because it's, it's, boo, it gives it free reign to go. Well, that's, that's not happening to me. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Aim for perfection, settle for progress. Six and seven. The most misunderstood steps, I believe, in, in, in all of the 12 steps. You know, um, don't say much about it in the big book, but they have a lot to say about it in the 12 and 12. I encourage you to go and reread that, uh, maybe in light of this article.
Step six. Second question raised here is, how does the surrender reaction change the inner psychic picture? It's going to answer that. This question is based on a presupposition, namely that surrender is an emotional step. Underline that. Surrender is an emotional step in which the ego, at least for the time being, acknowledges that it is no longer supreme. This acknowledgement is valueless. If limited to consciousness, it must be accompanied by similar feelings in the unconscious. For the alcoholic, surrender is marked by the admission of being powerless over alcohol. His sobriety has that quality of peace and tranquility, which makes for a lasting quiet within, only if the surrender is effective in the unconscious as permanent and permanent as well. Permanent is a moving target in my book. The effects of surrender upon the psyche are extremely logical. The traits listed as characteristic of the ego influence are canceled out. This is basic math, right? The opposite of king is commoner, appropriately. Alcoholics Anonymous stresses humility. Go make the coffee. Become right-sized. The opposite of impatience is the ability to take things in stride, to make an inner reality of the slogan, easy does it. Find that impatience. Do some things that are going to challenge that impatience. You know, instead of taking the shortest, quickest way home, I'm going to take a longer way home today. You know, you don't have to do it every day, but do it once in a while and feel yourself. Feel yourself. I got in touch with this one with the speed limit on the highway. Got really in touch with it. Very helpful exercise. If the speed limit is 55, that's what the sign says, 55. Well, what is it for me? What is it for the king? Ah, it's at least 60. <laughs> now you get in touch with that and, and you've done some good work. All right. And you go 55 for a few miles and you feel what it's like to be a commoner. Feel what it's like to not be the king in his chariot. All right. You, 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 you've got a good day under your belt. All right. Yeah. So the rules apply to me. You know, this is the laboratory. The laboratory is our lives. You know, you can lay on the couch for the rest of your life um, and pay somebody a couple hundred bucks an hour, or you can start to learn some of these basic principles and start working them and living them. The opposite of drive is staying in one position where one can be open-minded, receptive, and responsive. How are you doing with that? That's your step 10 stuff. This picture of non-ego type of, of the, the non-ego type of person might be amplified in many directions, but to do so would serve no immediate purpose. To have discussed the effect of the ego upon behavior and to have pointed out what may happen when the ego is at least temporarily knocked out of action is sufficient to make the point of this communication, this article. Again, I bolded this. It is the ego, the egotism, which is the arch enemy of sobriety. And it is the ego, egotism, which must be disposed of if the individual is to attain a new way of life. Up to this point, no clinical material has been submitted to confirm the ideas presented. Harry was writing this to a group of psychiatrists, okay? So that's why it's a little technical. It's quite technical in some parts. But they always, they always have to do a case study, all right? When, when they're giving, they have, give, give, me, give me an example of what, what you're talking about. So their validity will be apparent uh, to many therapists. Therapists understand what we're talking about here. One brief citation from clinical experience will be offered. However, in the hope that it may serve as a concrete illustration of these ideas. So he's going to do a case study. Here we go. The patient, a man in his late 30s, had a long history of alcoholism, 
with seven years of futile attempts to recover through Alcoholics Anonymous, interspersed with countless admissions to drying out places. Then for reasons not totally clear, he decided to take a drastic step. He determined to enter a sanitarium and place himself in the hands of a psychiatrist, a hitherto unheard of venom poison to the ego. We planned to arrange for a limited stay where he could have regular interviews with me. From the outset, he was undeniably in earnest, although it was only after the first interview that he really let go and could talk freely about himself and the things that were going on inside him. After the usual preliminaries, the first interview started with a discussion of feelings and how they operate. The patient was questioned about the word ego as used at AA meetings. He confessed his ignorance of its true meaning and listened with interest to brief remarks on how it works. Before long, he was locating in himself some of the ego forces which hitherto he had been vigorously denying because they savored too much of vanity and selfishness with that recognition. The patient made a revealing remark. He said in all sincerity, my goodness, I never knew that. You don't do your thinking up here, pointing to his head. You do your thinking down here, placing his hands on his gut. He was learning that the feelings had a mind of their own, and that unless he heeded, listened to what they were saying, he could easily get into trouble. Listening to them is not the same as following them, but he, you got to own them. He was facing the actuality of his ego as a feeling element in his life, a step he was able to take because he was no longer going at full steam ahead. His decision to place himself under care, a surrender of sort, had quieted him and made him receptive, able to observe what was going on in himself. It was the beginning of a real inventory, the beginning of a real recovery. The next insight he uncovered was even more startling. He had been requested routinely to report any dreams he would have. Much to his surprise, they appeared regularly during the point of contact. In his fifth dream, the patient found himself locked up in an institution because of his drinking. The interpretation offered based on relevant materials was that the patient equated any kind of stopping with being locked up. That his real difficulty lay in the fact that he could not tolerate being stopped and abstaining was merely another stopping he could not take. Patient's reaction to the interpretation was most significant. He remained silent for some time. Then he began to talk saying, I tell you doc, it was like this. I'd get drunk, maybe stay on it two or three days. Then I'd go into one of those drying out places where I'd stay five or six days and I'd be all over wanting a drink. Then I'd come out and stay sober, maybe a week, maybe a month, but pretty soon the thought would come into my mind, I want to drink. Maybe I'd go into a tavern and maybe not, but sooner or later I'd go and I'd order a drink, but I wouldn't drink it right off. I'd put it on the bar and I'd look at it and I'd think, and then I'd look and I'd think, king for a day king for a day. Screw it. You know, screw it. King for a day. Let those forces out. Let them run my life. We've all been there probably. The connection between ego and his own conduct had become explicit as well as the relationship between not being stopped and ego. He saw clearly that when he took that drink, he was the boss once more. Any previous reduction of ego had been only temporary. 
In treatment, Harry says, the problem is to make that reduction permanent. Therapy is centered on the ways and means, first, of bringing the ego to earth, the second, keeping it there. The discussion of this methodology would be out of place here, but it is relevant to emphasize one point, namely, the astonishing capacity of the ego to pass out of the picture and then re-enter it blithe and intact. A patient's dream neatly depicted this quality. The patient dreamt that he was on the 12th floor balcony of a New York hotel. He threw a rubber ball to the pavement below and saw it rebound to the level of the balcony. Much to his amazement, the ball again dropped and again rebounded to the same height. This continued for an indefinite period. And as he was watching, a clock in the neighboring church spire struck nine. Like the cat with nine lives, the ego has a marvelous capacity to scramble back to safety, a little ruffled perhaps, but soon operating with all of its former aplomb, convinced once more that now it, the ego, the inflated ego, can master all events and push on ahead. Harry continues, the capacity of the ego to bypass experience is astounding and would be humorous were it not so tragic in its consequences. You know, denial. It's unbelievable. I used to ask patients, you know, hey, you know, if broccoli did the things to you that alcohol did to you, what the hell would you do with broccoli? You know, I'd stop using it. I'd stop eating it. Damn right you would. <laughs> What's going on here? What's going on here? What is my relationship with alcohol? You know, why is it so different? Because it does things at the feeling level. And I got to get in touch with what those things are. And I got to find out how to find my way to many of those things in a healthy way, you know, uh, to, to have fun, to have excitement, to have joy, and to find it in ways outside of the alcohol or drugs. Because if, if, if after a period of time, I'm just not drinking, you know, and, and it's that kind of tension. Uh, look out, it's like a rubber band. It's going to snap. It's going to snap, you know. So um, this, this unconscious stuff is, uh, I mean, it's kind of challenging. And uh, I know Dr. Bob said, well, don't get, don't get lost in all that Freudian stuff. And that's okay. I encourage you to get lost in all that Jungian stuff. He didn't, thank God he didn't say anything about Jung. Uh, because what Jung is saying is, is there's a spirit inside of me. And that's what I got to get in touch with. And that's what I've got to turn my life over to. And that's what I've got to be in conscious contact with. All right. It's a whole different deal. Freud could never get there. Jung did. Jung did. And uh, that's why Jung was well thought of by Bill Wilson. You know, and he con contacted him. Some lovely letters between him that you can find online. Anyway, cutting the individual down to size and making the results last is a task never completely accomplished. Glad you agree with me, Harry. The possibility of return of his ego must be faced by every alcoholic. If it does return, and I'll guarantee you it will, he may refrain from drinking, but he will surely go on a dry drunk with all the old feelings and attitudes once more asserting themselves and making sobriety a shambles of discontent and restlessness. Oh, look at those words. Restless, irritable, discontent. You know, you don't forget. Uh, Harry was Bill Wilson's shrink, you know. And they talked about this stuff. What's going on? What's going on down there? Not until the ego is decisively retired can peace and quiet again prevail. As one sees this struggle in process, the need for the helping hand of a deity, a God figure, uh, becomes clearer, a higher power. Mere man alone all too often seems powerless to stay, to stop the forces of his egotism. He needs assistance and needs it urgently. 
I think Harry gives a, a brilliant description of step one. And, and the real message of step one is the hopelessness of doing this battle by myself at the level of conscious struggle. I mean, if you, if you are what the big book calls a real alcoholic or a real addict, you know, and if you ain't having much success at the other level ways, uh, you might just be, it might be necessary to, to start digging in to some of this deeper material. And it may sound like work in the beginning, but I promise you, it is great joy because also within is this other personality um, that, that, that lives inside of each one of us and wants us to become who we were meant to be. And alcohol, drugs, food, whatever, whatever the shortcut is, it's never going to get me there because it's not real. But I got to find the real. And what does the book say? The great reality is within. You get in touch with that great reality. And then you and the great reality have business together. And that business is for that great reality to work through you. All right? And that's the point of two-way prayer. That, that you're parking your little ego over to one side. It has to cooperate. It has to show up. But then it has to kind of turn itself down and allow unconscious things to bubble up, you know? Intuitive thoughts, inspiration. Yeah. That, 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 that's the adventure. Thiebaud has one more article that I, I think is worth, uh, he's got several more, and they're in, in that Hazelden book, but I, I wanna do one more on surrender versus compliance, because for me, that was probably the second most important one. I don't think it's as good as the uh, ego factors in surrender, but, but it's got some material. He touched on it here, but goes a little bit deeper into it in the next one. Anyway, that's what I got for today. Uh, I, I hope this uh, information was helpful. I know it was heavy. Um, that's you get print yourself a copy of that sucker and use that as part of your morning quiet time. Part of it is education. It's reading. It's uh, learning what's happening at the deeper levels of self. So, okay. Hope this was good. Uh, I enjoyed it. I paid attention. I watched my little ego and uh, saw it's still in there, still operating, uh, still ready to get me into trouble. So I, I thank you for listening. Uh, God bless and keep coming back. Thank you.